0: Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talk to Eva Verwald, who is an assistant professor in economics at the University of Toronto. Eva's work is focused around reducing the barriers to evidence-based decision-making, and is, in my mind at least, one of the most interesting topics we've explored on the podcast so far. So what does that mean? Well, when you think of evidence based decision making, you might have a pretty clear picture in mind of experts running different RCTs and then coming up with a pretty concrete list of recommendations for what policymakers should and shouldn't do. But underlying this idea is the assumption that if you do studies in one context, they'll also hold elsewhere. So, for example, say a charity pilots a RCT of deworming pills in Kenya and finds that they're really cost effective. Well, then you'd hope that they'd also be really cost effective if the Kenyan government scales this project up, or if the charity tries to do it somewhere else. The first part of our interview is, however, shows why this really doesn't hold as much in practice as you might think it would, and why many development economic studies have surprisingly poor so called external validity. This has lots of consequences for EAs and the causes that we should support. We then explore a lot of other aspects to do with evidence based decision making such as how researchers and policymakers update their beliefs in the light of new evidence, and what biases these groups tend to show. It's something that I hadn't really thought much about before this episode, but has now really shaped my mind in thinking about what effective research even looks like, so ones that actually go on to change the right people's minds. We also hear about Eva's experiences in setting up the social science prediction platform, and the ability of researchers to accurately guess the results of studies in advance. Eva talks about how this opens up a really exciting opportunity to spot the most novel studies and how this might in turn help combat the bias against null results in academia. All in all, this is a really packed episode and one that I think raises a lot of interesting meta-questions for anyone looking to understand or get into social science research. If you want to look up explanations of some of the more technical bits or delve into these topics more generally, we always have a write-up that we recommend you check out. It's much more than a transcript, and we're always really glad to hear how listeners find it useful. But without any further ado, here's the episode.
1: I am currently an assistant professor in economics at the University of Toronto, and uh, I work um, mostly on two main areas. First, looking at barriers to evidence-based decision-making. So this is where some of my work is on like Bayesian hierarchical models and how much can we generalize. Um, as well as some of the forecasting work. Um, but I also have got a body of work as well on cash transfers. <laughs> uh, for example, I'm involved with this recombinator basic income study. So I've got sort of two main areas at the moment. Uh, of course, I am also a big fan of global priorities research. So I'm trying to, you know, as much as possible, uh, contribute on that front as well.
0: Awesome. So before we delve into those studies, then, what was it that made you want to study economics in the first place? And then how did you get interested in this more uh, meta questions, right, about social science and, and evidence and, and the like?
1: I got into economics actually a little bit circuitously. I, uh, in undergrad, I didn't take any econ courses. OK, I took one course in economics, but uh, I was actually a, mostly a philosophy undergrad. And I uh, thought at the time that, you know, there was maybe a lot of fairly good answers out there in philosophy. Like now that I'm a little bit older, I'm like, okay, maybe there's still a little bit more that people could say on certain topics. But at the time, I was like, okay, you know, I've read Peter Singer seems to have gotten it down pretty well. Um, But how does one operationalize what one should really be doing? And that I think there's a lot less of. So maybe I should be going more into economics to try to explore that. So I uh, yeah went into economics from there and I was uh, a bit lucky to uh, have also had a background a bit in physics that helped sort of me get on the right track in economics because otherwise it would have been, I think quite difficult to transition from philosophy to economics.
2: That's a good answer. As someone who did a philosophy degree, I am frustrated by a number of times on this podcast and like other interviews and podcasts where you hear like really amazing academics and intellectuals explain their backstory, which is just always. I did a philosophy undergrad and then realised the error of my ways and thought better of doing interesting stuff instead. (laughs) Maybe I'll do that too. I
0: I think we had one guy, right, who did it the other way around. I think Nicol did economics, right, for his undergrad and then switched to philosophy. So you do see it the other way as well. But it's it's great defeat
2: from the jaws of victory.
0: (laughs) Let's delve into your research then, Eva, and the first thing we kind of wanted to talk about is this idea of causal inference and generalizability of studies. So you wrote this this paper of some of the problems that we have with studies in economics or other social sciences areas that might have really interesting results, but that those results don't necessarily hold when you try to either replicate them or when you try to go on and form policy from them in in the real world. Um, can you maybe lay out that question that you were fundamentally trying to answer and what this kind of term of of generalizability means?
1: When I was starting this work, uh, sort of where the field was, was that there was a lot of impact evaluations in development economics in particular, and there had been an increasing focus on rigorous methods. And these impact evaluations had kind of exploded, kind of taken off. And I think at the time... You know, now there's maybe a bit more nuanced view as to what they can add. But at the time, it was like, okay, like the narrative was go and evaluate something and boom, you're done. It was like impact evaluation 1.1, not impact evaluation 1.2, 1.3, whatever. It was, you know. And I think people are a bit more sophisticated these days. But at the time, I thought, okay, great, we've got all these uh, results. It would be nice to try to synthesize them and say a little bit more about what works in a systematic way because. you know that probably any one study is um, not going to have the full picture. Uh, I didn't quite understand the extent to which uh, any one study doesn't have much of the picture at all. But, you know, I started this uh, organization called Aid Grade, which was a nonprofit research institute that compiled the results of these impact evaluations and then tried to analyze them more systematically. And Out of that, I quickly learned that the results from different studies were kind of all over the place. It was a disappointment to me. I was uh, rather distraught. To I mean, you know, I had some idea that there would be some amount of variance, right? But I didn't have any idea about the extent of it. And it was rather larger than I thought. So this got me thinking about the question of uh, generalizability more broadly and, you know, how much we can generalize from one context to another and how one can measure that. And that sort of led me to a lot of my research. I ended up, you know, building on that data, essentially.
2: I don't want to patronize you or our listeners, but would you mind saying a bit more about what we mean by generalizability in this context?
1: Yeah, no, sure. So essentially the ability to uh, infer uh, what will happen in another context when you do the same or a similar kind of intervention for example, you know, you've know you got a study on conditional cash transfers programs, and you have one study that says that they'll you know, increase enrollment rates by five percentage points, but that study was done in a certain context by a certain implementing organization, and maybe you want to try to export those results to you know, what you would get if you did in your own context somewhere else, and a lot of things change in doing that translation, so the result is not necessarily going to be the same when you do it.
0: And I think it might be worth kind of distinguishing here as well between this kind of concern that you mentioned about whether a result you do in one study will hold in another context and this kind of concern that the study itself was done in a poor way, right? There seems to be a a difference here about those two concerns. Could you maybe clarify those?
1: Yeah, so I think this is really getting at like internal voidity versus external voidity. So internal voidity is uh, this focus on within the study having results that you're pretty confident about. And what do I mean by you're confident about them? Um, Well, ideally you have got an unbiased estimate. So maybe it was from a randomized controlled trial and maybe, you know, it's also a fairly precise estimate. So it's not something that is estimated very noisily. You can pretty well trust the results in that context. And then external validity would be, well, how well do those results apply somewhere else. So, you know, if you, you can have a study that is perfectly internally valid, but it's only valid for that one thing that happened and it's array in the past. And you, even if you were to redo it in the same setting, it's not clear that you would necessarily get the same results because if nothing else, you know, you would have hoped that the previous treatment had changed something, right?
2: Thinking just about um, economics and development economics in particular, do people tend to fall down one way or the other on this trade-off? Like where people have to go in just for, Um, lots of internal validity or external validity, are people kind of favouring one or the other um, consistently?
1: So I think people want internal validity for sure. It's, you know, a number of reasons of why that um, might be the case, but uh, certainly people prioritise it, let's say something confidently at least in one particular setting. There's also certainly publication incentives to at least be able to say one thing well. Yeah, so that's right now the way the chips fall on that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and um, there's like an interesting kind of way to think about it, I guess, in terms of like incentives for researchers and for policymakers, right? but i kind of got the impression as well for researchers internal validity is like a really big thing because you know it involves kind of rigorous statistics and good experiment design and the like but when it comes to to implementing things in the real world a policymaker might care more right about whether those results then generalize to whatever population or people that they are responsible for right when they're they're designing their program is is there anything to that or what kind of is your your take there
1: So I think it's right that economics has been very focused on internal validity, and I think this is uh, based off of, first of all, an increase in people just realizing, hey, there are some methods that are more rigorous than others, and so maybe in some sense we should um, do more of them. It's not to say that people can't design studies that have more external validity. They could, if they wanted to. <laughs> um, they, you know, there is at least under some assumptions that you could make about how the effects might vary by different groups. Uh, you could try to create a study that you would think ex ante might have more external validity. That's the thing you could do. I think you're right that policymakers do care more about well. How does something perform in your particular setting? That said, I don't want to overstate that because uh, I recently did some discrete choice experiments with Aidan Koval of the World Bank. And one thing we did there is we literally asked policymakers, practitioners, and researchers, suppose you had two different uh, types of programs, which program would you support? They're supported themselves by different types of impact evaluations. And the researchers but we, we did a forecasting exercise as well, where we asked researchers, um, as well as uh, some other people, but mostly researchers, to predict what the different groups would have answered. And the researchers uh, predicted for themselves that they would pay the most attention to it not being an observational study. Um, the second most attention to, uh, I think it was, uh, whether it was an RCT. <laughs> uh, so very similar to not being observational. Um then the third most attention to like whether it was precisely estimated so all these things are things that have to do with you know the internal validity and rigor of the study but uh in truth how they actually behaved at least in the discrete choice experiment was that they put the most weight on like what did the study actually find and then yeah they did care about whether it was observational or not but then the third most weight was placed on whether a local expert recommended it or not so you know I think there's actually even a little bit of a disconnect between like what researchers believe and what they think they believe or what they think you know they're supposed to believe (laughs) I mean in terms of thoughts versus actions there seems to be a bit of a disconnect at least in our research so far.
2: Maybe this is a silly question but on this same Survey when you're asking researchers and policy makers about how they kind of assess and react to different kinds of evidence. You talked about which kinds of evidence they prefer, um, but did you also find any indications of actual like biases or inaccuracies where people are just just have kind of false beliefs or ignoring? Um, important kinds of evidence um, in that same uh, survey?
1: This was less in the same survey, but we did do a related piece um, that was looking at how policymakers and researchers and practitioners were updating their beliefs based on the results of academic studies. And there we definitely found some behavioral biases. It's a little bit not a surprise because you think, well, everybody's got these behavioral biases, of course, policymakers would have them. And uh, we didn't find actually differences in the biases between the different groups. I mean, maybe we would have if it was if we had larger samples, but uh, it didn't seem like nothing sort of popped up in that regard. People had different priors, but not different biases. So. Uh, the, this really suggests that they're exposed to different information and that that might be what is maybe driving some of the different beliefs that policymakers and researchers have. Maybe they search for information differently, but um, in terms of how they interpret an impact evaluation result, it seems to be you know, roughly the same. And the kinds of biases we're talking about here are things like essentially over-optimism or like uh, there's this good news, bad news effect where maybe you update more on good news. Um, so it depends a little bit on the setting and uh, situation you're in like in some other fields depending on your research question, sometimes people actually update more on bad news but when it's having to do with um, impacts of programs that people are you know really wanting to be true (laughs) and wanting to have good effects I think there there's the bias towards you know uh, putting more weight on good findings and uh, this is true even if it this program has nothing to do with you actually
2: (laughs) so it sounds like there is a kind of general bias towards updating less on bad news compared to good news, uh, which isn't, I guess, so surprising. I do that all the time. But you also said there's a kind of difference in priors between practitioners and policymakers and researchers, even if there isn't a difference or a clear difference in biases. Can you say something about in what kind of direction those differences in priors go?
1: So actually, they have got uh, generally higher priors, the the policymakers, so they think they will have more of an effect, but they're also less certain about it. The researchers, you know, you can sort of stereotype them as saying they're sure that it's not going to work. And it's entertaining because it just resonates so much with what you see out there, you know, all these negative comments uh, by these researchers.
0: As a, as a kind of follow-up question as well, how much do people tend to update their beliefs at all from these priors? I mean, right, like in an ideal world, you'd, you'd like to have everyone be Bayesian and, and do this perfectly as well. But do you have any indication of, of how much people actually do respond to, to new information when it goes against their existing beliefs?
1: Yeah, so people are definitely not Bayesian. So I think people use different heuristics. There are some people who, no matter what, sort of stick to their guns. There are some people who, no matter what, sort of, believe the new evidence and then there's the people sort of a little bit in between. Uh, This is very simplified, but, and I think that, you know, one thing that seems to be common is people not putting enough weight on the variance of the new information or like the precision of the estimates that they're getting. So that's just one respect in which people are not Bayesian. Like you would think that, for example, if somebody saw some result which had small confidence intervals or they saw a result that had large confidence intervals around it, suggesting we don't really have much Uh, faith that that estimate, the point estimate is where one thinks it is, right? You should update differently on those two data points. And yet people update sort of less differently on those two than they would if they were Bayesian. You could theoretically make an argument that maybe that's actually optimal in some sense if there's some other biases out there in the world that not being Bayesian kind of corrects for. But I think I share the same intuitions as you that unless somebody really specifies, like what is their model of the world in which you know having non-Bayesian updating is a good thing, <laughs> uh, that's a little bit suspect. But uh, you know, I, I, I'm willing to be uh, convinced on that if somebody actually has a, a good argument for that.
0: It kind of gets at something very like foundational, right? In in our kind of thinking about what the purpose of research is right because i mean with a lot of these kind of studies or kind of interventions and stuff you would like to think that if we do the research and if we make sure that our studies are good then that will benefit the world by kind of increasing the amount of knowledge we have and that people will use that knowledge effectively when it comes to policy right like that kind of like foundational idea of of evidence-backed policy but When you kind of see these things you know whether it be biases or um like like other ways of, of kind of interpreting this this evidence how does that make you think about the the purpose of research and and how good it is in actually shaping policy in a in a positive way
1: there's a lot of steps and sort of chips that have to fall in just the right way for research to be effective per se I do think that overall, pretty great to, you know, produce new research. I think it has, you know, large effects overall, just because there's so little that we know. And it's good to have, it's good to have some knowledge of what's a good thing to do. But whether a particular piece of research translates to policy, most people will say that much of the research doesn't. And it's actually very hard to predict what will sort of uh, take off. And there's a number of factors that can sort of that a little bit helped to determine that. Uh, It, of course, depends a bit on your field as well. Um, It depends on what governments you might be working with or talking with. Um, It depends what the populations in those uh, countries are currently advocating for and seeking because you can find an economist to say basically anything you want.
0: And, and how has your, your own like, personal view about it kind of changed over time as well? I'm, I'm curious if like doing those experiments or doing those studies themselves have had like, any effect on you on, on how optimistic uh, you are about these things?
1: Yeah, so in some sense, I was working with the sample that's kind of the best case scenario with people who actually care about impact evaluations, because we were recruiting these people through these impact evaluation workshops. So the policy who were there were already very selected, but I think in a good way. I mean, that's actually intentional because if it doesn't sort of work there, then there's kind of no hope anywhere because <laughs> um, the rest of the, the people who aren't attending these workshops just don't care as much, right? So I think that it is a harder problem. Um, everything's always harder when the, when you actually get into it than it looks like from the outside. That's the, <laughs> in general seems to be true. So. I don't want to be too pessimistic either. I mean, overall, you know, I, I think sometimes people come away from my work with this sense of foreboding pessimism, like, oh no, there's nothing that we can do. It's just all hopeless. And that's not really how I feel about it. It's just uh, one of those things where the challenge is a little bit harder than you think initially.
0: <laughs> Let's kind of circle back to the, the things about generalizability. So maybe a, a good way to, to kind of tie into this is if you could maybe unpack a little bit more about um, what you found when you were doing these meta-analyses at aid grade, what, what did you kind of find? And can you maybe unpack some of the results um, you found about whether external validity tends to hold or not in, in these kind of development economic settings?
1: Overall, results generalised a lot uh, less than I thought that they would. I think it's important to note here that generalizability is actually a thing that one can measure. It's not a binary one zero, a lot of the way that people used to talk about it was, well, you know, you either have external validity or you don't. And we know that you don't. So you don't. And that's it. You know, you can pack your bags and go home. That's it. That's all we can say about it. And I don't think that's true. Um, there are certainly different kinds of studies that have got different degrees of generalizability. So I think one thing, just to sort of be a bit more concrete about this, you know, if you want to sort of see how well results generalize, uh, what you can do, and what I did was, you know, you have a set of results. So these were some results from that analysis. And there are results that are all from the same intervention on the same kind of outcome. So say like, you know, the effects of cash transfer programs, uh, conditional cash transfer programs, say, on enrollment rates. And so it's the same kind of thing. And... the the same intervention, same outcome. And within the intervention outcome combination, you can say, okay, now I've got a set of like, I don't know, uh, 10 studies. There's a lot more of that for conditional cash transfers and enrollment rates, but suppose I only have 10. Uh, Let me draw one of them and see how well the other ones sort of predict that one. And, you know, or you can sort of do this in a forward looking way. And you can say, let me plot all these along sort of a time series and say in the past historically how well has each of these, these uh, this past evidence uh, to date and helped in uh, predicting the next point along the way as it were and when you do that it depends of course how you're modeling the effects of the new one like the Most naive thing you could do is to simply pool all the studies together and say, look, I'm going to take the average or the weighted average. That's basically what a meta-analysis result is, It's the weighted average in some way Um, of all the different study results on this particular topic, on this particular intervention and outcome. And I'm going to use that as my best guess as to what will happen next. And you can do that. And if you do that, um, good luck to you, (laughs) because it's going to be, you know, it's something like... Um, You know, you find that it will have like X effect plus or minus X. I mean, it's worse than that, really. Um, Yeah, it's 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 pretty bad. So what you can do next is try to say, well, look, I know that's a little bit too simplistic. And maybe there's some other characteristics. Like I know these these particular set of studies, like the subset within this larger set, um, they were all done in a place where maybe they had particularly low baseline rates of enrollment. And maybe I think it's going to be easier to improve your enrollment rates if you start at like 70% enrollment rates versus if you start at 99% enrollment rates. Like there's only so much you can move in the latter case, right? So um, maybe if I know that piece of information, I can build a more complicated model that has got some other explanatory factor in there. And I can say, well, look, uh, X percent of the variance uh, actually can be explained through this other factor. And you can try to do that, but it's also got its limitations because um, at least uh, right now in development economics, well, first of all, good luck having that many studies, really. (laughs) I mean, I think development economics is where you do have a larger number of studies on the same types of interventions and outcome combinations. but. There's a number of things. So first of all, all the papers try to cover different outcomes from one another. It's uh, publication incentives, really. Everybody wants to be the first one to publish on a certain topic. (laughs) And so that means covering something that nobody's done before, which means it's hard to make comparisons. So you're probably not going to have that much data um, that's one thing and the second thing is that there are so many characteristics and variables that could actually matter and be important so you've got this cursive dimensionality going on where you've got too little data and too many possible explanatory factors and so it's very very hard to say i mean you can try to do meta regression where you try to you know include all these explanatory factors but it's uh, not going to help you that much in the end so the naive thing even though it's naive is at least the thing you know you're gonna be able to do. And so that's why you see it a lot out there in the real world. Um, it's not the sophisticated thing to do, it's not the thing you would do ideally. But it, you know, if you read uh, some of the white papers or reports various institutes put out, um, that is what they are going on, if they're going by meta-analysis at all.
2: <laughs> so much to pick up on there. Um, one question I had though is you mentioned you were looking at conditional cash transfers as uh, one intervention. Can you give some idea of other interventions you were also looking at? And did you see differences in how generalizable different interventions tended to be?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we had a wide array of interventions uh, that we collected data on. There were conditional cash transfers, unconditional cash transfers, deworming programs, bed nets, a lot of the causes actually that effective altruists uh, tend to, you know, put fairly high up there uh, in terms of cost effectiveness. Um, So there were 20 of these topic areas and. I should say within some of them, we also did capture some of the variants in the programs themselves because you say conditional cash transfer programs and well, there's a lot of conditional cash transfer programs. What exactly do you mean by that? So, you know, there's a larger data set that we also compiled on what were the incentives, what were the conditions, what was the sample like, like age range or grade range. Yeah, we we got this on like 20 different topic areas. In terms of... um, which ones had the uh, larger problems with generalizability, I would say that the thing that seemed most predictive from my perspective was how uh, close a relationship there was between the intervention and uh, sort of the outcome in the sense of like, what's the path through which it's supposed to have an effect? Like, how direct is that? So for conditional cash transfers, say, it's pretty direct. You give people cash and you explicitly condition on... Um, that particular thing, that's pretty direct. Some of the health interventions are also pretty direct. You give somebody a deworming drug and maybe they're better. Um, I will say, you know, for deworming and for some of the health ones, it's actually interesting because those are the ones where the main variable I would look for um, if I had to pick one to explain uh, some of the variation is the baseline rates of whatever the thing is. And so when you do see variants in the effects of different deworming programs is generally because the baseline worm prevalence is actually very different in the different locations. So um, that's, you know, if you can actually control for that, then great, you're back in sort of like the nice world where there's some fairly direct treatment. And I would contrast that with, say, like microfinance, which we know doesn't work very well, and which um, there's a good reason to think that, you know, it's actually... You know, if you think about it, there's a lot of conditions that need to sort of fall into place in just the right way in order for it to have a real effect. Like things need to be screwed up enough that people don't have access to microfinance, but not so screwed up that they can't actually make profitable use out of it.
2: As a kind of outsider to all this, can you give some sense of how many of these studies at least kind of try to speculate about what kind of causal chains are going on, which explain why they're seeing the kind of data they're seeing?
1: I don't think causal chains are going to save the day here in the sense that it's a really few studies that report anything <laughs> about them uh you know maybe the better papers report them but at least in the data that aidgrid gathered i can tell you it was like less than 10 percent. we stopped recording it at a certain point because it, it was just hopeless to try to gather it or like yeah there's not going to be enough there you know maybe Looking forward into the future, maybe people sort of get better at sort of recording that information. But I think right now probably we're actually approaching that maybe a little bit more closely, even by some of this forecasting work, right? So for asking people to sort of predict what the effects of different programs will be. And you can ask people also to forecast uh, whether they think certain models are the right models or not. So uh, there is a way that you can put structure on it Um I wouldn't count on the authors of the papers necessarily making it totally transparent in their papers.
0: What, one other thing I wanted to, to touch upon from your kind of results was that you also found that there were differences in the types of results that interventions got, um, depending on, on some other factors. So, for example, who was conducting the studies or how big the, the sample size was as well. Can, can you talk a bit about those factors and, and why that matters?
1: There's a large number of ways in which results can vary. And it seems just at first glance that the smaller studies, which are often these pilots done by either researcher implemented or the researchers are collaborating with an NGO and it's a pretty small team and it's a pretty small scale pilot, um, those ones have the largest effects overall, especially when contrasted with, say, uh, government implemented programs, which tend to also be larger. Both the government implemented ones and the larger projects both of them tend to have smaller effects and it's a little bit alarming because you would think well we do these studies with you know the smaller scale pilots in the hopes that it does really well and it scales up really well but there's like a number of ways in which that scale up can kind of break down and there are now a lot of people really focused on the scale up problem and including entire institutions like YRISE at Yale for example and some of the reasons that these uh, scale ups can kind of break down well, you can have some political economy issues. So, for example, um, you've got this uh, contract teachers program where you hire some extra teachers, but if you try to scale it up uh, countrywide, then the teachers union comes in and uh, there's a big fuss. Uh, that's a reference to a paper by Bold et al. Um, you can have some situations where um, you have got um, general equilibrium effects. So say you've got a program where you're giving uh, business owners some additional benefits in some way. So think of, you know, maybe even like a microfinance program or like a grants program, business development program of some sort. And you give it to some... Small segment of the business owners, and they do pretty well. But if you are actually to scale it up, you start to realize, well, hang on, it—they're doing well because they're doing well compared to the other people you didn't give it to, and now you've given it to everybody. So you can have some issues with, or in the, in the context of cash transfer studies, people are often concerned of, well, if you scale something up, won't you just sort of have inflation <laughs> and sort of some price differences? that you didn't have in the initial study because your initial study was small scale. So there are these general equilibrium effects. There's also though, the possibility that first of all, your original study, that was maybe the small scale targeted thing, was simply better targeted, like you were targeting the group that you expected to do the best. You wanted to find some nice, positive results, both because of your own incentives and because if you can only give the program to a certain group of people, you might as well give it to the people who would benefit the most from it. You know, it's a little bit understandable. But then when you expand the rollout so that it's not as well targeted, then you're getting anybody in there, including people who you don't think it would have as much of an effect for. So that's another reason. But the reasons continue to go on and on. and I, You know, I can keep talking about this ad nauseum. Like, what if, um, you know, you, you have a government implemented project and it's fine when it's small scale. But when it's a larger scale project and it really expands to and they need like, you know, more staff to work on it, you might start to have capacity problems where the extra staff you put on the project are just, you know, you don't have the capacity to implement it at scale well. So there's like a large number of reasons. And of course, the one that I haven't even mentioned is the um, issue that there might be some kind of decline effect where um, that's sort of just a more statistical thing where maybe, you know, everybody is... Uh, concerned about getting significant results and if easier in some sense to engage in p-hacking or specification searching where you run like a thousand regressions and you only or a million regressions and you just report the ones that are significant maybe it's easier to do that and find significant results when you've got a small-scale study and so when you have a larger study those ones maybe are more realistic in terms of what the effects are just because it's harder to sort of p-hack your way out of them into you know high positive uh, significant results. So I just gave you a whole slew of reasons. <laughs> um, it's, you know, I think it would be, I would love to see a paper that appropriately distinguished between the different reasons. I can't with my data. Um, and I really hope somebody does that study in the future.
0: I guess, um, to to follow up from from what you said there before ever, those are all like reasons, right, that we might be skeptical of of scaling up these programs, or even, you know, do these programs in other settings or like to, to expand them in any way. And that feels like a, again, like a very pessimistic conclusion. And, and you said that you don't want people to, to kind of come away from from your work more more cynical or uh, more pessimistic. So I was wondering if you've got maybe any examples or kind of things in the development economics literature, maybe more, more generally, where we can kind of take some, some success stories of things that do appear to either generalize very well, or uh, things that that have scaled up successfully in the past? Um, are, are there any kind of interventions or kind of success stories you, you can share there?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think we have learned some things, right? So I think that um, there's three things initially come to mind, but there's a lot that I could talk about. So one thing is it's actually, I think, helpful to sort out the cases that don't work and be like, these ones don't work very well. So microfinance, you know, okay, we have an answer for that. Let's put it behind us and move on. Um, Deworming, um, that I feel like we have learned that it matters a lot, whether a particular treatment was randomized by individual or by cluster. Um, You know, that's a important finding and um, it also matters what the baseline rates were okay that's also good to know and based on that uh can more confidently say like which, which kinds of interventions um within the the uh, umbrella of deworming kind of you know are the ones that we should be focusing on and that's great too and uh, the third thing that i would mention is just that you know the fact that we can't really generalize very well from one context to another doesn't say sort of give up the whole enterprise it says that you need to have sort of more local um, studies if that's the way you want to go like if you really need certainty um, then you should be doing studies not not less studies but more studies Um, but you know of course people say look that's kind of expensive we can't do that so what can you do instead well I mean this is where I think uh, part of my work uh, forecasting is getting into a bit, like, can we um, forecast some of the results of impact evaluations pretty well? Because if we can, or if we can at least learn how they're wrong and how they can be debiased, then that gives us some kind of lever and some ability to say something uh, in those cases where we don't have a nice, you know, unbiased RCT. So, you know, I think being able to say something in the context where we don't have studies is important, and can potentially help with the uh, external body problem like external body problem is only a problem if we can't explain the variance if we can explain the variance even if it's just through forecasts then you know all the better so I wouldn't say it's pessimistic I would say you know we learn some things don't work and it's good to know that (laughs) you know
0: no, it's so right. And I think, so this this might be like a, a little bit off topic, but it's something I, I really wanted to to ask you about as well. And this kind of, I think, links in more to this idea of effective altruism and how you kind of deal with evidence as opposed to like anything really academic. But there is, right, like in uh, EA, this kind of idea of of thinking about things in kind of expected value terms, which means that, you know, as, as we've kind of seen with like long-termism or, or some of the, the newest stuff as well, is that there seems to be um, like a lot of value maybe in, in long shot bets. So things that have like very low probabilities of working or you're very kind of uncertain about the range of outcomes it can take. But if you're expected or your your mean kind of value is, is high, then you should still kind of take it. And I, I was curious about like what you kind of think about it, because it seems to me that there is something about if we're so unsure already about how things will turn out in these like very controlled uh, very kind of local development, economic kind of public health intervention settings, how we can think about this when when things become more complex, or when you're thinking about the effects of things like 100 or 200 years in the future. Um, yeah, so I was just kind of curious about what your, your take is on that, if, if
1: if that makes any sense. Yeah, so I think there are two problems here, actually, that are interrelated a bit. So the first is, you know, should you be risk-neutral or risk-averse? And I think that you know, I would be sympathetic to thinking about things in expected value terms overall, more or less. Um, I think it depends if you are in a situation where, so, I mean, why would somebody be risk averse? Well, suppose you have a situation where, um, you don't just sort of personally feel that the losses are worse than the benefits. Uh, like, you know, everybody's got loss aversion where they tend to wait the possibility of a negative outcome in some sense, more than they do like the, the positive one. Um, and, uh, You, uh, you know, I'm not talking about your personal loss aversion. But suppose, for example, you're a government and you're implementing a program, and you know that if it fails, you're not going to have a chance to implement another program. I don't just mean like you yourself selfishly are then you know (laughs) unable to have some work to do. That's not what I mean. I mean like you know suppose you think that you could do something potentially well, and you you want to really you know give it your best shot. And if there are these sort of asymmetric payoffs, then Sure, in that case, I can understand. What I'm trying to say is I can understand why governments have a reputation for being risk-averse. Their incentives are to be risk-averse um, in some sense. But I am also sympathetic to the fact that, you know, by and large, yeah, um, pursuing the expected value makes a lot of sense if there is no uh, none of these considerations. But, you know, I, again, like how does this uh, uh, fit in with the... Um, future and what we should be doing well look if the situation is really complex this is again uh because you mentioned you know so how does this tie into we, we don't know very much well i think the way it ties in is if you don't know very much the temptation is and i think the right impulse is that if there is some hope that you can learn more in the future well then there's some option value to waiting for the future and if you can push some of the decisions out later uh, push the decisions out later. Like you're sort of saying you're in, still in the explore point, part of the like explore exploit trade-off that people make. Right. So like the explore exploit thing is like, first you want to sort of explore the whole space and find the good options. And then you exploit those good options that you found. So for example, like in the context of um, like a classic example in economics is like job search. Like you can keep on searching for a job or you can just say, yep. Okay. I found one. Great. <laughs> I'm good. Or, Relationships is another area that people often talk about. I think with regards to knowing what to do, we're still kind of in the exploration stage. We just don't know as much. That's all it's telling me.
2: Yeah. So in terms of practical consequences, I guess it sounds to me like one upshot of your work is that it pushes towards exploring rather than exploiting. And what that means is maybe spending more time and effort in kind of thinky, gather evidence, do research mode rather than implement things mode, but I f- feel like there's a kind of another question about what your work should make us think about this kind of bundle ideas that gets called um, long termism. So in the context of you know like familiar global health quote unquote short term um, interventions. I guess it's kind of clearer, right? Like if someone just came along with some idea for a charity or intervention, which I hadn't heard of before. And I could say, look, I've, you know, I've read Evers' meta-analysis of how these things generalise. I now have like a really sceptical kind of prior, so I'm going to like just be more suspicious of this all work than I was before I read all this stuff. But when it comes to these like ideas about long-termism, basically I don't know what this stuff should make me think, or like how it should change my mind, and I can see it going either way, right? So, like on one hand, it just makes me more skeptical in general about the ability to make predictions about the effects of certain interventions. And so, the further you project into the future, the more uncertain you should be, right? So, it's like it's just like even worse needs for long termism. On the other hand, long-termism draws another other kind of sources of evidence, right? It uses kind of other uses, just kind of other kinds of arguments. Maybe it's like just in terms of the weighting of the portfolio or something. Maybe it pushes towards long-termism. So yeah, it's a long-winded way of asking what do you what do you think this will kind of mean specifically for for uh, long-termism?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I remember um, somebody asking me, so you know, what do you think of long-termism and I was like well we can't even predict the present how can we possibly predict the future um i i would say that i've a little bit uh tempered my view on that and i think that's still the point at which i'm the most skeptical but at the same time it is uh, plausible to me that you know if you don't really know right now i i'm relatively confident that there are better things out there that we just haven't really sorted out yet like um And it also seems like, you know, I'm sympathetic to the view that um, there are maybe higher rates of return uh, for just investing in something uh, in the short run and then later on. So like the giving now versus giving later debate, like you can choose to give now and then, you know, you give to to whatever organization is, you know, distributes the bed nets or whatever, or you can give later and um, in that time, you know, your money has a little bit compounded um, because the rate of return that it's been getting has been, you know, potentially higher than the um, uh, actual growth that would have happened, say, if you had, you know, given out these bed nets or whatever. I'm a little bit sympathetic to that argument, actually. Well, I'm quite a lot sympathetic to that argument. So, you know, it's true that I don't know I think the jury is out to, to what extent we can predict the future. And I'm a little bit skeptical that we can do it well. Um, some of my own research right now, I'm trying to get a better sense of like what kinds of time skills are plausible for us to make good forecasts over. And in economics, sadly, you know, we're not focused on things that can um resolve 100 years from now or a thousand years from now because we'll not have data from that but if we can't even predict what happens one year from now or five years from now well that's some indication you know at least put some kind of bounding in some sense so you know i think that's an area that i am trying to explore a little bit more right now but uh yeah it's a it's a concern i think right now it's still sort of lean on the giving later side but um and um appreciate long-termism certainly a lot more than I did before. I'm I'm not 100% convinced. I'm not like a complete, uh, you know, I, I can be uh, swayed in the other direction. But I think for now, you know, it's been, you know, you, you were saying earlier that, you know, you'd have one thing that you've changed your mind on. I think it would probably be this, that it, it's initially a very compelling to say, well, I just want to be able to make a difference right now and, you know, give my money right now. And I think the one thing that I've changed my mind on recently as well maybe giving later is better and i think it does tie in actually quite nicely with some of the research i've done
2: one pedantic thing to say is that i can imagine some people hearing that answer and thinking hang on this question of giving now versus giving later what gets called patient philanthropy is at least in principle separable oh yeah from questions about long-termism right so i'm not suggesting you're making that kind of you know you're blending those two things together but it is worth you know drawing them out
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to conflate the two. Um, I think often, you know, people who do care about one care about the other, like they're in the Venn diagram, the intersection is fairly large. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, those are distinct for sure.
2: A natural follow up to your answer there is just to um, ask a bit more about this research you mentioned about prediction, predicting the future.
1: Look, I guess where I'm starting with this research is on a much more limited and narrow type of question. In part, uh, this is you know almost like the internal, external validity trade-offs. Um, it's the thing that I think I can say something about pretty clearly and confidently. And it's um, looking at how well we can predict the results of research. And the intuition here I've a little bit alluded to, which is just that look, you're never going to have all the studies that you want. It would be great if you could start to forecast what you would have found if you had actually been able to do a study. <laughs> this is good for like a number of different reasons. Um, it's good to uh, figure out what your own contribution is, like how novel the result is. You need to have really have um, people's forecast ex ante in order to have something to compare against and say, yes, this was really surprising. Or It also helps a little bit to gauge the credibility of a result, like, the surprisingness of a result is kind of a double-edged sword in a sense because if it's really surprising well it's a great contribution if it's actually correct but there's you know if you're Bayesian, there's also some chance a higher chance that it's not replicable that you made some kind of error somewhere um there's something special about your context that makes it surprising and have less external validity potentially and uh so that's like one set of reasons but you can also imagine that if you could have a lot of forecasts of uh, research results, well, that also first lets you say a little bit more about, uh, substantively about how people are updating their beliefs, like you need to get their priors first in order to be able to get how they're updating. Like some of this work I was saying that I was doing with Aiden Koval and we we're seeing how policymakers update their beliefs in response to new evidence. There's also, you know, could potentially mitigate publication bias against null results. So like right now, if you've got a study Any find null results like you you can't distinguish your results from having zero effect generally zero is used as like the null hypothesis that you compare things against um it's really hard to publish those kinds of results right now Um, everybody wants significant results so if you actually can say well look yes these results are null but it's useful that we know these things don't work. That's a valuable contribution. Like it's surprising that they don't work and now you learned something, right? So I think that's actually the better yardstick. So I don't want to lean too, too hard on that because I could imagine a world in which everybody converts to making forecasts of the research results. And because of that, and all the papers are being evaluated on how surprising they were. And now everybody's trying to game the system to have the most surprising results. So like, I don't want to lean too, too hard on that, but I think that is the right way to go. And just to, you know, add a couple of additional quick reasons why um, these forecasts can help. So they're also necessary if you want to do anything Bayesian. I mean, you need forecasts of some kind, you need priors of some kind, so you might as well get them through expert forecasts. It's a rather principled way of doing it. And uh, finally, and perhaps the biggest one, but the most speculative in a sense is, well, yeah, I mean, I was alluding to this earlier. If you can make good forecasts, you can start to take Prior seriously to some extent, and you know it's a little bit heretical in the sense that uh, you can think of it almost like observational data, right? Like it's not the results of an RCT, or just aren't you just going back to asking people, "Hey, what do you think?" (laughs) and using that, and that's a little bit, you know. Uh, that's where i think it's important to not just ask people for their forecasts and go based on that but to connect the forecasts to research results to those results from rcts so that you can start to say look this is how much confidence we can have in them this is how much you know we're likely to be off in some way you know we can ascribe certain percentages to what is the uncertainty (laughs) that we're trying to capture here yeah so that, that sort of corresponds to all of our estimates so i think that's sort of like the more principled way of using forecasts and if you're using them in that more principled way i think they are going to certainly be at least somewhat informative and personally i'm of the belief that if your data source is at least partially informative yeah use it <laughs> we know it's not right we know it's not 100 nothing is 100 percent. but you know if it's partially getting you in the right direction great let's use it i mean the only case where that would not be true is actually going back to this earlier discussion about whether something is um Someone is risk neutral or risk averse. Like, if you've got some really horrible thing that happens, if you take a guess based on somebody's forecast and you're wrong, eh, okay, maybe in that case don't use the forecasts. But yeah, if you're being risk neutral about it and it gives you, it's just slightly better than nothing. (laughs) Sure, use the forecast.
0: So let's maybe um, set out the context, right, of how you went to collect these predictions. So you set up the social science prediction platform. Can you talk a bit about that and uh, how exactly it works and, and how maybe listeners could even get involved with it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is a joint effort with Stefano De La Vigna at Berkeley. And also there's a team of people as well sort of involved supporting it. So it's, it's been a you know team effort here. And essentially, you know, Stefano had a body of work where he was previously collecting forecasts for various purposes. And I had a body of work where I was collecting forecasts for various purposes. And we were doing this independently and then we were like, hey, we should just do this platform. Like we both sort of came together from these shared interests from different projects to work on this platform where. We thought look it would be great to get more uh, systematic collection of forecasts in economics and it could make a real substantive difference to the discipline and i mean the the phrase that i like to say to excite myself about it sometimes is that you know it can really change the way we do science (laughs) i do think it even has that you know potential in the long run Um, because there's a lot of individual studies now that are trying to collect forecasts for their own study and it would be great if we could say something more systematic about when those are more are likely to be true and also to sort of solve the um, coordination problem whereby i was mentioning like there's some possibility that if you don't coordinate everybody gets spammed by thousands of requests to answer all these forecasts but if we set it up on a platform we can a little bit mitigate that risk and there's also some other benefits here so we can build on some kind of learning that we've done through having a lot of these surveys we've got you know a survey forecasting guide like how do you design a forecasting survey um, we have got tools to share results back with forecasters Um, So if you're a researcher and you're collecting people's forecasts, you often want to share those results back with the people who took the survey. That's actually even part of IRB applications often is like, how are the people who are participating in the research benefiting from it? And so this is a thing that researchers often have to do. And the nice thing about the platform is that it sort of enables them to do that. Um, There's also some tools to sort of help the forecaster. So the forecaster themselves can sort of, if they've taken some surveys, see where they sort of fell in the distribution of all the people who took that survey for a particular question. And um, when the results are uploaded back to the platform, they can see what the results were too. So they can see how accurate they were. Yeah, so it's a huge initiative, I would say, but one that has been I think the easiest thing i've done in my life so far because everybody loves it like the incentives are aligned i'm like just now discovering the magic of economics and aligned like it's just sort of happening right lots of research teams are wanting to use it because it's helpful for them for their own studies and there's also demand actually amongst forecasters um there's people sign up for the platform at least more than a quarter of people ask to be emailed anytime time that a survey is put out. Now, we're not doing that right now. We're emailing people like maximum once a month just because we don't want to, people to get sort of you know tired of it and go away. But, yeah, demand has been pretty huge. It's like uh, a little less than a quarter, say, don't email me at all. Like a lot of people actually want to be notified when these surveys are available and participate in them. So, yeah, it's been going awesome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm curious to hear as well if you know from from kind of overseeing all of this and, and seeing what people's predictions are as well do we have any insight into like how good predictions tend to be like do they line up with what the actual studies then turn out to, to get as results and are there any biases or is there any uh, like consensus at all about what's kind of going on there?
1: I think the thing that most directly answers your question is actually the literature on overconfidence. So. Um, a bunch of people when collecting forecasts actually also ask people to rate how confident they are in their ability essentially to forecast it correctly. And generally speaking, over and over again, we do see that uh forecasters are overconfident in their ability to forecast. And I think that's not even just like a personal thing. It's not like they're saying, Oh yeah, I myself personally can forecast really well. It's hey, we collectively can forecast this really well. So I think my answer to your question is, I do think there's some signal there in the forecasts that we gather. They're not uncorrelated. Um, sometimes they're correlated quite well. Sometimes you get like 0.5 or 0.7 correlated. That, in my opinion, that's nothing to sneeze at. That's useful information, I would say, compared to what people are Uh, Thinking of maybe in the back of their minds, like, oh yeah, we can just forecast this, and then boom, we're done, go home. You know, (laughs) Uh, I think that's too optimistic, and I think that's where you can sort of use the results uh, that you see for overconfidence to actually give you some information about that. So I think my answer is it's worse than people would expect, but way better than nothing, and it's valuable to do this kind of work. So. Yeah, it actually a little bit mimics uh, my feelings towards the external validity issue. <laughs> like, sure, things you know, are not really great, but um, they're not maybe as good as you know I expected at least. And uh, I think most people expected. Yeah,
2: Have you tried your own hands at predicting social science results? And were you surprised by how good slash bad uh, you turned out to be?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that I, like most people, I am generally wrong about something, unless it's something I have some reason to really know, you know, something I've been like really paying attention to, maybe I'll be closer to it. But most people overall, and myself included, you know, it's, it's the wisdom of the crowds kind of thing, like the crowd does well, the average person does well, but any one individual is going to be pretty far off for any given question. <laughs>
0: I'm curious about this because it does seem right that there is like consensus that individual people can't really predict things. But as a crowd, we turn out to be, you know, better than you might expect. Uh, And I'm curious about like how many people do you need to have a crowd or for for this kind of thing to take effect? I don't know if if there's like any way that you can have insight on this, like from the platform, but like how many forecasters would you need to like actively participate before you would have like any sort of confidence that, you know, collectively or kind of taking the average that there is some some knowledge in that?
1: What I can say is, uh, we did a bunch of pilots, actually, to try to think a little bit about exactly this kind of question. It was less like whether the wisdom of the crowds would be accurate, per se, and more what kind of precision would we get in the estimates? Because, you know, suppose you're using these forecasts as an alternative null hypothesis. Well, then you want that to be fairly precise. Like, suppose you're using the mean, say, that's your summary statistic. You're using the mean forecast as your... Alternative to zero that you're making the the comparison between yeah, your treatment effect and this forecast. Okay And so we want to know how precise are your estimates and What we found is that even for a relatively small number You can get estimates that the variance is not that that huge Um, That's probably good enough for most purposes. Of course. I mean, it depends what you're comparing it against There's a lot of like hand wavy it depends on this it depends on that but you know, you don't need as many people as you might think, actually, to have some convergence quickly in what that summary statistic like the mean would be, right? I mean, it's a little bit like the, anything else that involves convergence with larger numbers.
2: Yeah, I just had a eureka moment when I realized why this is useful with respect to this kind of publication bias and this bias against publishing null no results, because I didn't realize that that would work. But what do you said? Oh, you can use the kind of crowd's prediction for how some experiments are going to turn out as like the replacement for, for the null, or I mean, as the new null, and then you're kind of getting a better indicator of like, how surprising a result is. So first of all, that's very clever, and also, I guess, to turn it into a question, could you like, say something more about what is bad about this bias against um, publishing null results, and also what is potentially bad in some instances of using just zero? as the, the null rather than the kind of expected outcome.
1: The publication bias against null results is a big issue. It can really bias the estimates upwards. Uh, so why it biases the estimates upwards is because what is making an effect uh, significant is some combination of what was the magnitude of the effect and what was the standard error around your estimate. And so you can nudge either of these if you are, you know, doing any kind of like, you know, evil specification searching or p-hacking, you could try to affect either just by your choice of your specification, you're you're running a million regressions and just selecting the ones that are significant. What that ends up doing in practice is, generally speaking, nudging up the effect size that you're reporting. Like on average, that's sort of inflating your estimates. Um, And it's also making things just uh, significantly different from zero when, when they're not. And similar concern you you were asking, like, what's so bad about comparing against zero? I mean, we can also just argue about like is zero the right reference point? So here it a little bit depends. Like suppose you've got two different programs or two different treatment arms, you maybe wanna compare them against each other. Maybe that's the relevant comparison. And to be fair, a lot of people do make those comparisons when they've got two treatment arms within the same study. But um, what often is the case is people only have one treatment arm within the study, but they still compare their effects to zero rather than comparing it to, you know, what would have happened otherwise. And I think that's understandably because we don't necessarily know what would have happened, uh, like what what kind of policy a policymaker would have pursued uh, apart from the one that is being tested. So I, I, implicitly, they're all sort of testing it against, you know, how does this program do compared to nothing when. The real comparison is how does this program do compared to something else that we could have done that's probably not nothing. In terms of like uh, scientific knowledge, though, I think what you should be comparing it against, I mean, I think there's a really good and strong argument to be made that you should be comparing your results to what the consensus view was beforehand, at least if you are trying to discern how much a particular study added to the literature, then you're really looking at how much did this shift beliefs. What did we learn from this study? If you're just looking at like, was this program better than this program? Maybe that's not the right way to go. But if you're trying to figure out, you know, what is the value of running a particular study? um, Those forecasts are going to be super important.
0: Is there any scope to see if there are people who are really, really good at this kind of forecasting activities? Uh, you know, like on Tetlock's kind of work of super forecasting. Is there any scope to see if if those people exist on the on the social science prediction platform, or if there's like any ways that we can utilize that to our to our advantage as well?
1: Yeah, definitely. And actually, that's one of the major advantages that the social science prediction platform has over people just sort of collecting forecasts on their own, which is that we can actually compile a panel of the same people over time. I mean, you create your user profile. And so we see how individuals do not just on one question, but on multiple questions over time. And um, that allows us to say, like, are there certain types of either studies or um, some interaction between what the study about and the person's own characteristic like this person's domain expertise or their seniority or whatever, you know, that make it the case that those forecasts are more or less accurate. Um, and apart from just sort of seeing, are there any sort of traits about the people or the studies that are associated with them being forecast better? We can also look at, are there some super forecasters in uh, within our sample and what are their characteristics and attributes? Um, so hopefully we can identify some of them
0: it It made me like think as well of DARPA's replication program. I think it's called score or something, where, you know, kind of in the wake of this replication crisis you had going on in the social sciences, they just kind of created these huge experiments where they went to see if, like particular people had any ability to to tell apart what kind of studies would replicate and what wouldn't. And you can imagine that being really useful to know. I mean, similar to what you mentioned before as well, of this kind of idea of predicting, Studies kind of in advance, especially when you're looking at interpolating, right? But between different studies, um, yeah, it seems really valuable. It seems like such an interesting avenue to do. Is there any like ongoing work um, in this kind of area a- at the moment?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. So I'm glad you mentioned the DARPA Score project. There's some great work being done there. Uh, there's like the Replicats team based in Australia, and there's also replication markets, uh, which I think is associated with the uh, Science Prediction Market. On our side, I mean, we do have some replications as well on our platform. Uh, We have some people asking people to forecast, you know, does such and such a thing uh, replicate? We're not actually involved in the DARPA score one per se, but we do have some replication questions there. I think the thing that we're focusing a little bit more on is getting some of the treatment effects, like getting effect sizes, getting not just treatment effects, but like first stages. So what do I mean by first stage? Like suppose you are... Uh, evaluating the effect of a particular program and I don't know, maybe it's like a bed nets program. And the first part of that is, well, are people even using (laughs) the bed, sorry, are they taking up the bed nets? Are they taking up the project? So you might be have like a first stage where you're looking just at the take up rates and then, okay, given that you've taken them up in some way you've taken up the program, uh, you're participating like in the treatment then what <laughs> you know then what is the effect so you can have like a number of different uh, statistics that are interesting to forecast you can also forecast just summary statistics so actually right now most of the uh surveys on the or most of the key questions on the social science prediction platform are not about treatment effects per se but summary statistics so um the results, for example, of that discrete choice uh, experiment that I mentioned earlier, I mean, it's not that there was some treatment that people were subjected to. They were making choices between uh, studies that had different attributes. And uh, so we're forecasting what well, can people predict, which kinds of attributes people put more weight on. And uh, similarly, there's other summer statistics out there in the world that uh, I think would be very relevant to the effect of altruism communities.
2: Um, yeah, can you say something about what the COVID-19 model challenge that you've set up uh, is.
1: This is a joint effort led mostly actually by Miriam Golden and Alex Kako and a bunch of political scientists. <laughs> I'm the lone economist on the project. Um, and so what this is all about is we thought it would be uh, interesting to know how well people are forecasting uh, COVID-19 mortality. So there's two parts to this. Uh, The first is we wanted to elicit a big set of models. So we're essentially crowdsourcing models through this uh, forecasting challenge. And then we're actually doing a second part, which isn't up quite yet, very, very soon, where we take those models and we put them on the social science prediction platform. And we ask people to put weights on the different models
0: you also mentioned in, in some of your work as well that this kind of stacking approach, right, that you take in inviting people to make these models and, and then kind of combining them. Can, can you explain what that is and what you see the benefit of, of that being?
1: Yeah, so the way we set this up, we um, separated out uh, the crowdsourcing of models and the putting weights on the models and how well they perform for a couple of reasons. So first of all, there is some evidence that people are reasonably good at sort of coming up with variables that might be important, you know, sort of explanatory variables, people can come up with those. But in terms of putting weights on them, it might be a harder kind of problem. So uh, first we want to make sure that we had a pretty comprehensive list of different kinds of models that people might have in mind so that we have some good ones in there and nobody can say, well, yeah, you did this, but they're for the crappy models that nobody cares about. Like we wanted to get as comprehensive, a good, a good set of models as we could. And then in terms of uh, the meta model, the idea there is, let's see how well each of these models sort of performs if we put them into, yeah, well, a meta model. So what's a meta model? Well, I'll make an analogy to um, a simpler thing, which is like linear regression, or you can even just say, like, suppose you're thinking about two things that are correlated. And um, in linear regression, suppose two of your variables uh, happen to be correlated. Well, the coefficients that you estimate are going to uh, be affected by that. And each particular variable in your equation is going to contribute less. Okay. So the stacking model has a similar kind of idea here where if two models are basically the same and they're not really adding much to the other models that are in there, then you'd put less weight the second approach to put less weight on those two models is essentially saying, like, how much of the variance do these models explain? Um, once you sort of throw them all in there as well as some you know, epidemiological controls.
2: I guess there's a general question here, which is that in doing this, you're getting people to anticipate how well certain models of the future perform, rather than just making predictions about which outcomes are most likely. What's the advantage in kind of taking this step back and making predictions about m- the models themselves?
1: I think part of the advantage is um, if you are asking people to forecast how well models perform and you get some sense of these models perform uh, better, well you can take those models to other data and in some sense, you know be more informative in more context. So if you just sort of ask them to predict mortality, well, um, lots of things can go into that so a thing that can be valuable because then you can sort of see like, is it the case that, so say you've got some model and you've got a bunch of different parameters in your model. Once those parameters change, you can know what will happen. You know, if the coefficients stay the same and you sort of know what happens when you just sort of change the the values of the parameters in your model. Alternatively, you could end up in a case where the coefficients themselves are not stable. And in order to differentiate between these, you really need something like a model, (laughs)
2: Yeah, I guess it kind of loops back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier about external validity and generalizability. There's a kind of loose analogy there where it's possible to um, predict outcomes accurately, but you're not quite sure how you did it. Or you could kind of be, yeah, I mean, you get things wrong occasionally, but you have this really robust model, and you're like more confident in applying it applies to other contexts. And actually, that sounds a lot more useful than than just kind of being kind of lucky and confused about how you're doing so well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the way I would put it is that it opens up the black box and it allows you to then say a little bit more confidently what you think the effect will be somewhere else. So I think it's not maybe quite a great fit for the internal versus external validity question, but I do think it's related to um, the question of generalizability. If there's a trade-off anywhere, it might be easier to make forecasts where you just say a number, you know, ask me to predict a number and I maybe will take 30 seconds to predict a number, ask me to create a model and predict like how, you know, think of this model versus this model and how they all sort of fit together. That's a little bit harder of a question to ask, but if people can do it, then that's really informative. So I think one of the things we're learning here is how well people can do and can people put good weights on these models? Is this sort of a worthwhile direction to go?
0: One thing I just wanted to, make sure to to ask as well, just to clear up, is when we were talking about the stacking approach and you mentioned that it kind of spits the the weights, right? If, if things kind of get repeated, is part of the idea then as well that that kind of incentivizes people, right? To kind of give novel contributions that other people might not, or, or what's the, the idea behind that?
1: So when we collected the models through the forecasting challenge, we explicitly said we were going to sort of award the ones that uh, contributed the most in the stacking evaluation. Now that's to incentivize people to try to really you know, pull from anything that they thought other people were sort of leaving on the table. Actually, there's a really nice analogy to be made to the uh, uh, social science prediction platform and the sense in which if you're comparing results against what experts previously believed and you are uh, showing something is surprising and, and true, that's kind of more of a contribution. Like we were trying to elicit those greater contributions um, in this way, but uh, it's really like a two-stage process where we first separately collected the models and we could have just sort of ended there and just be like, okay, how well do these models do? Like, let's throw them into a the, uh, stacking exercise ourselves and a meta uh, model ourselves and see how well they do. But there's like the second layer, which is, but how well do people think that they do? <laughs> like not, not how well do they actually do, but what do people think, you know?
0: I'm just curious about these kind of meta models and stuff. How do you interpret these then to like trying to get at like some sort of like, you know, whether it be causal chain or just some sort of like kind of lessons for policymakers? And is there like a risk that they just kind of end up overfitting because they end up being so complex, being models of models of models that, you know, they might be really good at predicting, but you have really no idea why it kind of reaches that decision. It kind of gets back to what you mentioned about opening the the black box. But I was just curious if you could kind of elaborate on that.
1: We were a little bit concerned that people would create these really elaborate models that might sort of overfit the current data and then maybe less be less uh, applicable later. And I think that's part of the rationale why we were thinking, let's try to ask people to only put in a few variables um, in their models uh, so that they're really focused on the best ones. Because like, if somebody just tries to throw anything in there and machine learn it and try to figure out you know, what are the build a really, really complex model, uh, they're probably not going to contribute that many, uh, like they they might risk overfitting it. Uh, Maybe not, but um, I guess the other reason why we wanted to restrict uh, attention to um, allowing people to only put a few things into it was we thought this might also sort of capture the way that people normally think and talk about it. Like, yes, sure, in your spare time, you can build some complicated model and you can try to make a test set and training set and, try to avoid overfitting. um, But uh, in day-to-day life, you're not going to be actually running those sort of machine learning models. So we want to sort of see how those uh, sort of went in terms of sort of building up the meta model. I think that's still valuable. I think you're right that there is a risk that if it it just sort of makes it way more complicated again, and then you can overfit with that. Um, I think, you know, again, like there are ways of sort of trying to mitigate that a bit, like test sets and training sets. For our particular case, not like we we're going to have like an easy test set or training set so you know on the other hand like i'm a little bit less worried about that being a huge huge issue for us i mean it's possible that we'll see that the early models that people gave are not going to be accurate out into the future but we're collecting some data at different points in time in the future as well yeah we'll see i guess <laughs> yeah
0: It'll be super interesting to see what the results are. And we'll definitely link to it in the write-up one, once those, those results come out um, to, to kind of see what, what you ended up getting.
1: No, I mean, we have obviously run it on the data that we have so far. We can't, you know, know what the future will bring on that, but uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> cool. Should we head into final questions then? We have two kind of questions we ask everyone, although I'm just thinking of asking a third one. Which is, so for context, this is one of Tyler Cowen's favorite questions, apparently. And we've been talking a bit about prediction and forecasting. And so the question is, what is your most surprising prediction?
1: I think compared to the uh, status quo, it is actually still surprising to people. A, that one can sort of measure external voidity. I still think people are mostly thinking about it as a binary thing. And the other thing I would say is that I believe that ultimately in the future, we will be leveraging forecasts much more for research and um, these kinds of data, even if they're not directly from RCTs, I think they sort of expand the scope and build from RCTs. It's not that they are undermining RCTs, they're kind of like RCT+. plus. So I think we'll see a lot more of that in the future.
2: Great. And the first proper final question is somewhat similar which is what significant thing have you recently changed your mind about and why
1: yeah so here i think this is the giving now versus giving later i think i was definitely in the giving now camp and uh, now in the giving later camp
2: yeah nice good brief answer i like it and last question is what three books or papers articles films whatever would you recommend for anyone interested in finding out more about everything we've talked about?
1: Okay, so I think the three, um, and I hope I'm allowed to give one technical answer, which is, I think if anybody's interested in Bayesian analysis, the, a, a good sort of starting point would be um, this book by Gelman et al uh, called Bayesian Data Analysis. Um, it's a textbook, but it's pretty cool. If I'm talking about forecasting, I have to recommend Super Forecasting. It's a classic, and maybe a bit more accessible than a textbook. <laughs> and I think for the third one, I would recommend uh, the Piketty Capital book, Capital in the 21st Century. Um, it's been out for a few years now, but um, and people have pushed back against certain elements of it. But I think that it's uh, still super important.
0: And um, where can people find about you online and, and the work you do? Uh, Is there any ways that they can get involved?
1: If you want to stay current on my research, the best way is just to look at my website. I've got a website that's got, you know, all my academic work on it. Um, In terms of the social science prediction platform, you know, that's got its own site and there is a Twitter account, by the way, uh, for it. Um, I have a Twitter account too, hooray. Um, So the uh, social science prediction platform, that one's at, um, you can either go to socialscienceprediction.org or the Twitter handle is uh soak, sci, predict so like s-o-c-s-c-i predict um for myself my webpage is just um my first name my last name dot com <laughs> i built the vault.com. and then uh for twitter it's the same kind of thing uh, without the dot com that would be weird um <laughs> and uh yeah that's i guess the best way to stay current
0: I was going to mention as well. I don't know if you if you want us to to plug it or not, but you can volunteer as well, right? For for aid grade, you can join the the data corps and and get involved with uh, some of the the meta analysis that you talked about. Uh, I don't know if that's still still running or not, but we'd be happy to to plug that as well.
1: Yeah, no, you know what? I am basically not operating that portion of it anymore. It still does exist as an organization, but the data corps was uh, too much work. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got to sort of uh, gotta be honest there, It's uh, yeah. You know, sometimes it takes way more work to supervise uh, volunteers than you'd think. I would say that um, if anybody has either skills in, um, so there are like a few areas that uh, I would be glad to have somebody's participation in. And one is um, certainly for the uh, social science prediction platform. There's more just web development work that can be done. We have an awesome web developer who is amazing and fantastic. And so this is not meant to reflect anything negatively on him. No, he's fantastic. But, you know, there's always more that can be done. And so I think it would be certainly helpful to just have another pair of eyes and hands uh, on that. And then the other thing I would say is... If anybody out there is uh, super uh, skilled at uh, building really complex models. Um, so here I'm thinking like of the deep learning type. those skills are actually pretty valuable. There's a aid grade does have a lot of data that could be uh, usefully used. There's lots of uh, things that uh, actually one can do and I can go on and on and on. but I think you know any kind of like deep technical skills, but like really good ones. <laughs> the kind where if people have these skills, they're probably gonna be doing <laughs> those are the kinds of skills that are yeah. the most valuable. For
2: the unemployed yeah. senior machine learning engineers. <laughs> yeah.
0: Amazing. Uh Eva vivalt thank you so much.
1: Oh cool, thank you. Good questions
0: That was Eva vivalt on evidence-based policy and forecasting social science. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash ever. There you'll find links to all the books and articles referenced throughout the episode, plus a whole lot more. If you enjoyed the interview, you might also like our recent episode number 25 with Julia Schwetz on overconfidence, and episode 13 with Jaime Sevilla-Molina on Forecasting. We would be very grateful if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have constructive feedback, there is also a link on the website to an anonymous form, or you can get in touch to us directly by emailing feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to support the show more directly and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, you can also leave us a tip by following the link in the description. Thanks very much for listening.